one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Resolving Spiritual Experiences. On January 12th of 2020, I flew down to St. George, Utah, where I had been invited to make a presentation in front of a large post-Mormon support group that meets on a monthly basis at the Red Lion Inn in St. George. I had been invited to make this presentation back in August of last year when I was down in Utah attending the Sunstone Symposium. A very nice fellow who I did not know at that time came up to me and introduced himself. His name is Wayne Hepworth. He is the leader of this post-Mormon support group in St. George, Utah. He invited me to make this presentation. I agreed. And on Saturday, January 11th, 2020, I flew down to St. George. Wayne met me at the airport, gave me a ride to a nice, beautiful bed and breakfast owned by Bob and Rosie Camel, and they were kind enough to put me up for the night. Also, the next morning on Sunday, before the presentation started, Bob and Rosie were kind enough to take me on a tour of downtown St. George, where I had never been before, and even take me out to Snow Canyon, where Bob and I went on a bit of a hike. We had to cut the hike short because we had to be back in town by noon for lunch and then 2 o'clock for this presentation. The room, I'm happy to report, was packed. There were 180 people in attendance. I met a number of fascinating people and wonderful people who were present. And I wanted to thank Wayne and Bob and Rosie and everybody who came out to listen to Radio Free Mormon give this presentation on resolving spiritual experiences on January 12, 2020. Bill Reel was present. An old friend of mine from Washington who had since moved down to St. George was present. His name is Daryl Adair. Lila Tuller was also present. The mother and father-in-law of my oldest son made an appearance. And I was also introduced to a very nice lady who turns out to be the niece of my mission president in Japan. Once again, I want to thank everybody who came to the presentation. So here is Radio Free Mormon broadcasting live from St. George, Utah, on January 12, 2020. Play the tape. So, without much further ado, I'm going to have Bill Real come up, which I think uh, most of you all know who Bill Real is. And he's going to introduce our guest. And uh, we'll go from there. So, Bill. Recognize a lot of faces, so good to see all of you. Um, we started Mormon discussion about eight or nine years ago at this point, uh, turned it into a 501c3, and about five years in, I just I noticed I was starting to get burned out from podcasting, and what I hoped to do was to at some point bring in other hosts to run their own podcast and to essentially have kind of a sort of umbrella. And I was looking for other good voices, informed people, people well aware of Mormonism and the ins and outs of it and could communicate the different aspects of the messiness, as I always put it, of Mormonism. And then suddenly I see on Rational Face there's a blog on the Adam-God doctrine. And it's written by this certain gentleman. And I reach out to him and I say, hey, I, I saw this blog. It's really intelligent. It's really well written. I wondered if you'd come on and do a conversation about the Adam-God doctrine. 
Do you mind if I use say your name? Is it, are we good with that, or you want to keep it a secret? It is secret. Secret, okay. So, so RFM, RFM decides to do a podcast interview with me where he talks about the Adam God, Adam God Doctrine. And when the thing is done, he's, he was really, he's just smart. And he's well-spoken, and he knows his stuff inside now. And I said, are, do you know as much about Mormonism and other things as you do the Adam God Doctrine? And he does. And I said, have you ever thought about doing a podcast? And uh, he said, no, I've never really thought about that. I don't even know how to do that. And I said, well, I'll, I'll show you. And so I took uh, about a week or so of, of different times talking to him and helping him learn how to use the different software. And then RFM just started recording under the moniker of Radio Free Mormon. Um, I've never met a person who knows Shakespeare so well. I've never met a person who knows movies so well. It, it, just in a day-to-day conversations, his ability to recall data points and information outside of Mormonism and inside, he's brilliant. And so I think we're all lucky today to have a chance to hear from him, um, the host of Radio Free Mormon, RFM himself. Thank you. He is great. I love Bill Real. I'm the president of his fan club. Can I get this clicked in here? Okay. Can everybody hear me? Yes. It is so great to be here. I got to tell you, I'm nervous. Very nervous to be here. But thank you so much. I wanted to let you know I got a text message shortly before coming over here from Rock Waterman. And uh, he says, by the way, I gave your appearance in St. George a big fat plug on Facebook. And a lot of people, I think, are going to go and see you. Or they're already there since it's today. (laughs) Is anybody here, here, because of Rock Waterman? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for trying, Rock. Yes. And also, by the way, I'm so sorry, but, you know, it's Rock Waterman. you got to do what he says. I had texted him back saying, hi, Rock. I am at a lunch with a lot of wonderful people. They are so envious of me that I am texting you right in the middle of the conversation. Many are yelling, hi, Rock. Thanks for the big fat plug, my friend. Love you. And then he texted back, well, tell them all hi right back. And remind them to read my blog when they get home. <laughs> I wish I was there with you and saw your presentation. So that's that's Rock Waterman. By the way, he has been feeling under the weather for a prolonged period of time, like a year. And so this blog that he has just put up, I think, is the first one he has put up in a year. So I will look forward to seeing that. Anyway, oh, I'm getting a little bit warm here with this coat on and this scarf. There's a reason for this. Um, does anybody here watch Hallmark Channel? And everybody's pointing to girls. Okay. Well, I watch it now, too, because my fiancé is a big fan, and it just seems that all the guys in all the Hallmark movies all wear coats and scarves. Am I right? So since my fiancé watches that, I figure I need to dress the part. This may come off. After a bit, because it really is getting warm up here. Okay, so the subject, the subject of today has to do with, it's a little bit different than what, what I usually do. It's not going to be picking apart somebody else's talk. 
or somebody's face-to-face -face presentation. It has to do with, well, first off, the title. Did you say what the title was, Bill? I didn't. Good introduction. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's not fair to him. I just came up with it in the bathroom before I walked in here. <laughs> I thought, dang, this thing needs a title. Actually, it does have a title. It's called Resolving Spiritual Experiences. Resolving spiritual experiences. So it's going to be a bit different. I hope it'll be okay. I've been working so hard on this for quite a number of weeks now. And it sort of came up because this question does come up from time to time, which is I talk about the spiritual experiences I have had. And people want to know, so how come a guy who's had the spiritual experiences that you have had is where you are now? You know, how do you reconcile that? It could be called reconciling spiritual experiences. And John DeLynn, in that marathon interview session that I did with him at one point relatively early on, asked the question. And then he said, we'll come back to it later. Okay. Um, but never got back to it. We never got back to it. And somebody who was writing little comments, which I didn't see, of course, while I'm talking to him, they're writing little comments, and uh, they said, hey, you never got back to this. I really want to find out about this. So maybe there are other people out there who are interested in this. And hopefully this will be uh, good. I, I'll tell you it was good for me. Because I am, you, you know how they say men are usually less in touch with themselves, their emotions, than women are? It's a horribly sexist statement. But with me, it's true. And I'm probably out there on the far side of men. I'm so not in touch with my emotions that it took a great deal of time uh, trying to figure out and sitting alone and, and in quiet and thinking about what it is that has happened with me and how it is that I reconcile the spiritual experiences I have had with where I am now. And I want to share with you where I am in that project. And the first thing we have is my notebook, okay? This is High Tech at Radio Free Mormon. <laughs> this is a composition book. And so a lot of times I put little notes in there that I'm going to do my podcasts on. This will be worth a lot of money someday. <laughs> and I put some notes in here. And actually, I've just been thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, jotting things down, jotting things down. But finally, at the airport, at the SeaTag, before coming down, I wrote down a rough outline. And a lot of the stuff, I finally ended up having way too much stuff to talk about, way over-prepared. That's usually what I do. So now, cutting, editing, and hopefully this will be good. So resolving spiritual events, the structure came to me yesterday morning when I was doing laundry. Seriously. Because that's part of the problem. It's just so everywhere. It's kind of difficult for me to get my arms around. But there are four things. The event is number one. Number two is the argument. Number three is the meaning, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the meaning. And number four is the truth. This is how I've labeled all four of these, okay? So number one is the event. I have had a number of spiritual experiences in my life. And they are, by the way, by a show of hands, how many here would consider yourself to be in the same boat? Okay, I am seeing a majority of hands go up, not all, but a majority of hands go up. And I think that uh, there are a number of ways that we can deal with spiritual experiences. 
Uh, obviously, when we're in the church, it's very easy to deal with spiritual experiences because no matter what the spiritual experience it is, they all mean the same thing. And what is that? The church is true, right? It's very easy to deal with spiritual experiences in the church. But when you start moving beyond the church, now those spiritual experiences become something that can be a nagging concern. And how do I resolve that experience with where I am now and how I'm seeing things now at this point of my life? Um, let me give you a good example about discounting a spiritual experience. That's the next part, because I think a lot of spiritual experiences people tend to discount. By the way, this is in no way a lecture on how you should deal with your spiritual experiences. Okay? All I'm here to do is tell you how I have resolved my spiritual experiences. And hopefully, maybe something I say somewhere along the line, and I'll be quoting from a lot of smart people, may resonate with you and be meaningful to you as it has been to me. But I know a lot of people have experiences in the church where uh, they feel comfortable later on discounting them. Well, I thought that was a spiritual experience at the time, and maybe I only kind of thought it, but maybe it was just heightened emotion. And so that probably wasn't really a spiritual experience, and I don't have to do a lot of work in resolving it because that's pretty simple, right? I can give you a good example from me, which would be like when I got up and bore my testimony, which was like every fast and testimony meeting after I got baptized in June of 1978. I'll try and stop there. Uh, you'll thank me, I know. So 1978, yeah. Uh, what happens? Oh, my gosh. I feel I need to be up there. I need to get up in front of this audience, and there's this pounding in my chest, and it's like my heart is going to leap out of my chest that the pounding is there. And, oh, that's the spirit, right? That's the spirit telling me I need to bear my testimony. Well, for me, looking back, I think that's pretty easy for me to say, no, you're just going to do something that's kind of nerve-wracking. And that probably isn't necessarily the spirit of God that's telling you to bear your testimony. So many of these, at least for me, can be discounted or resolved relatively easily. But I have had, um, and once again, these are all completely subjective, right? A spiritual experience is by its very definition subjective. I can't look at your spiritual experiences and judge them. You can't look at mine really and judge them because they are subjective and not objective. But as I say, uh, by the way, how many people have heard me talk about some of my spiritual experiences? There's a few. I wish it were more. But thank you for those who have. There's some on, on podcasts throughout. I don't spend a lot of time on them, but I do bring them up. And I'm not going to bring them up here. That's not the point, really, of today's presentation. But I'm kind of like Kurt Russell playing the part of Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China. Look, I'm an ordinary guy, but I've just experienced some very extraordinary things. So what do I do with that? And it's funny that when I was in the church... And I would have doubts about the church, and I wanted to remain with the church. I had to go through the process of trying to resolve my doubts. But now that I've moved beyond the church, I have to go through a different process. It's not resolving the doubts, it's resolving my spiritual experiences that I've had. So, by the way, that's the end of part one, the event. Part two is the argument. Okay, so the argument. This is not my argument. This is the church's argument. And it has to do with spiritual experiences that we have had as members. The argument 
is being heard, at least by me, much more frequently nowadays, and the argument is simply this. You have had spiritual experiences. You read the Book of Mormon. It's kind of taken for granted that you've had spiritual experiences if you were a Mormon. And if you are doubting, or if, God forbid, you have left the church, what you need to do is you need to remember those spiritual experiences that you had, and as a result of that, you need to go back to church. How many have heard that argument in one form or another? In fact, there was even a recent video that was put out, which I think was specifically about this issue. It was kind of a young guy. I don't remember the name of it. It's like there, there are so many church videos that are somewhere on the church website or on YouTube. But it's a young guy, and he's talking about he's having all these doubts. Do you remember that one, Bill? He's having all these doubts, and but darn it, um, he remembered that experience he had on his mission. He doesn't say what the experience was. That's not the point of it. I had this experience on my mission, and then I remember that time when I was reading the Book of Mormon, and I felt the Spirit. So this becomes the argument for taking whatever doubts you may have and putting them to the side, sticking them in the closet, trying to close the door on them, locking it, and just continuing with your life because you have had spiritual experience. So that's the argument about going back to church because you've had spiritual experiences. So I thought about that, and I thought, does that argument make any sense? I suppose on a surface level it makes some sense, but then I started thinking about it some more. And there are a couple of examples of why it is that that argument is not necessarily true or is not necessarily accurate or doesn't necessarily make sense. First one is the major blunt instrument that we can use in discussions of this type. And by blunt instrument, I mean Santa Claus. <laughs> Santa Claus can be a blunt instrument, okay? It's easily wielded, it does a lot of damage, and relatively effective. I'll try and get to some more scalpel stuff later. But first is Santa Claus, because I've got to think, you know, when I was a kid, oh my gosh, I had such spiritual experiences related to Santa Claus. If you want to call it emotional or spiritual slash emotional, but boy, they were huge. They were technicolor. They sang to me, oh my gosh, never happier, no, never more excited in my life than a kid at Christmas time. And all that expectation. Can anybody here relate to that? Am I the only one? I, I think a lot of people can. But at some point, that kind of went away because I, I realized very reluctantly and disappointedly that Santa Claus wasn't real. I was looking around. I'm not seeing any kids present. Okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I started saying that on the podcast, and I said, wait a second, if any kids are listening, take them out of the room, I'll give you five seconds, because <laughs> I don't want to do that to somebody else. Um, but yeah, so the question is then, that being the case, and that being pretty universally recognized, what would I say if somebody came up to me and said, hey, Radio Free Mormon, remember all those great experiences you had about Santa Claus when you were a kid? Yeah, I do. Those were real, weren't they? They were real. Okay, because of that, you need to go back to believing in Santa Claus again. <laughs> well, maybe I'd like to for a bit, just to experience that again, but I cannot make myself do that. Even if I would like to, I can't do that. And so I see that as sort of similar to saying, well, you had a good experience at church, for those of you who actually did. Not everybody raised their hand, by the way. <laughs> Or related to church. You did? I did. Good. So did I. And so um, the deal is this. If Santa Claus 
good feelings, going back to believing in Santa Claus, does not make sense, then why should this other argument necessarily make sense? Okay? On his face. Now, I know the comeback is Santa Claus isn't real and the church is. Okay? But that's a little bit beyond where we are right now. Now, the other thing, which is not Santa Claus, has to do, this is another example of why it is that that argument made by the church is not necessarily accurate in my view, which is a bad marriage. Okay? It is heard sometimes, probably by some counselors, I know by the church, back when they did their little focus on the family or whatever it was, the videos they had back in the 70s. Remember that? Uh, commercials. And they would have little pro-family messages, and some of them were very nicely done. I like those. And, but one of them was a, a little commercial of this couple who was in trouble. Their marriage was kind of on the rocks, and they weren't really getting along as well as they used to. But then they show, oh, the, the husband is thinking back to some time when they were at the beach and walking along the sand hand in hand. And the wife thinks back to some time when they were doing something else that was equally romantic. In other words, thinking back to the good times in the marriage, right? As a reason for staying in the marriage, even though they're having trouble with it now. That may have some legitimacy to it. I'm not a marriage counselor, okay? I have two ex-wives to prove it. <laughs> but it does strike me that that kind of advice is not always accurate in a marriage context. And it also strikes me that that kind of advice could actually be harmful because it would apply equally in an abusive marriage as it would in a non-abusive marriage. So if you apply it across the board to anybody, then what you're saying is that a victim of abuse in a marriage should remember the good times in the marriage and because of those good times, go back into the abusive relationship. Now, I'm not here saying today that I am likening the LDS church to an abusive spouse. But I'm also not up here saying that the LDS church is not like an abusive spouse. <laughs> what I am saying is that these two examples show that this type of argument based upon spiritual experiences, no matter how real they were, do not necessarily serve as a valid argument for getting a person to return to the church. And within the past few days, it occurred to me as I was thinking about this, that if that is true, which I think it is, that these arguments cannot be a valid reason for getting someone to return to the church, then it must mean, logically speaking, that they cannot also be a valid reason for staying in the church in the first place. Does that make sense? I think it follows logically. If, the, if an experience like this is not a logical reason or valid necessarily to go back to church, then it can't be a valid reason for staying in the church. Okay? So that kind of busts that one open, at least for me. And once again, pondering this stuff helped me to understand more about where I am and why I am where I am now. Now, that's number two. Number three, the meaning. The meaning of our spiritual experiences. Once again, we are in subjective land. That's up to you to decide. First off, it's up to you to have your experience. Then it's up to you to decide what to mean, what it means. But now, what I've said right now is at variance with what the church would have you believe. Because on the one hand, the church promotes spiritual experiences. It wants you to have spiritual experiences. But then it also is going to control, with an iron hand, the interpretation 
of that spiritual experience. What I'm suggesting and what came to me eventually and over a great deal of time is that my spiritual experiences are mine, not the churches. The churches doesn't have a trademark on my spiritual experience. And not only that, the church does not get, in, get to interpret my spiritual experience for me. And all of this came about, this was one very important part of my, my spiritual development, in a conversation on a message board with a guy named Seth Bag. I have no idea what it meant. It was Seth Bag. It was one word. Are you here, Seth Bag? <laughs> You're not here. Oh, there is a little child present. Forget what I said about Santa. <laughs> You didn't tell me. Oh, okay. Oh, I feel bad, but I think she's really just preoccupied. She's really not paying attention to the guy in front. Smart. Okay, so, but he was a person who had been a member of the church, who had gone on and was no longer a member of the church, and we're having a discussion. And here's part of the problem of having a spiritual experience or multiple spiritual experiences like I have had, which is that there are other people in the world who have claimed to have spiritual experiences telling them that their religion or their faith or their church is true. Okay, that does not fit into a Mormon paradigm. And therefore, even though I didn't want to do it overtly, yet the thought was in the back of my head. Well, there's two ways to explain that. Number one, they're crazy. They're making it up. Okay. Their spiritual experiences are made up. Mine are real. Okay. Or you can get Satan in there. Or they're being deceived by Satan. Okay. They're not making it up. There's a real experience, but it's coming from Satan. Mine. <laughs> mine are from God. Right? It's like somebody once said, I can't remember who it was, but he said uh, the definition of continuing, what was it, continuing revelation. Um, apostasy is when your church changes. Continuing revelation is when my church changes. <laughs> but, but I had to actually, because I'm having a discussion with this guy, and it's kind of public, at least among the members of the board. I have to actually confront this and I have to realize and recognize and admit that it's not really fair of me to say that anybody else's spiritual experience, they're confused, but I'm not. Because it's a two-edged sword. Cuts one way, it's going to cut the other. And frankly, it's also not very charitable either, is it? To think that everybody else's spiritual experiencing, everybody else's spiritual experiencing telling them their church is true is wrong, but mine is right because they're confused and I'm not. Same thing with Satan. Satan's even more extreme. All right, so you get the special pleading that has to go on. Mine is true, theirs isn't. And eventually I came to the conclusion through talking with Seth Bag on this message board that I didn't go where he went, which is that it's all bogus and that nobody really has spiritual experiences, but that multiple people could have different spiritual experiences telling them different things, even mutually contradictory things between different people. But that does not affect the reality of the spiritual experience they've had. 
So ultimately, I just told him, here's the difference between the spiritual experiences that everybody else has and the spiritual experiences that I have. There's one key difference. You know what it is? It's mine. That's the difference. And that way I don't have to judge anybody else about the reality of their experiences, but I have to give special place for mine in exactly the same way that I would expect that everybody else has to give special place for theirs on the same basis. So this has been maybe seven or eight years ago that that occurred to me and that I came to that conclusion. And having understood that, having understood that, The idea that I kept saying it's mine, it's my spiritual experience, it's my spiritual experience. And after saying that enough, I started realizing, hey, it's my spiritual experience. This isn't the church's, it's mine. And then I started thinking, well, you know, maybe I'm just the kind of person who is prone to have spiritual experiences for whatever reason. Not that I'm better than everybody else, though it's a possibility. No, people, people are different. Um, but now we have to talk about, uh, yeah, the interpretation, right? The interpretation of the spiritual experience. From my point of view, if you cannot discount your spiritual experience, and I cannot in, on a number of occasions, I cannot discount it as heightened emotion. Elevation emotion. Thank you, Bill. He feeds me my lines when I forget. I just go, line. <laughs> but if they're real, the event itself doesn't have to be discounted. It can still be real to us. But the interpretation does not have to remain static. What happened is what happened. This is what I wrote down in my composition book. What happened is what happened, but the interpretation may change over time as we learn and grow. So let me give you three examples, three stories, okay? Enough theory, let's get down to the brass tacks. And here is when I understood and realized for myself that the Holy Ghost was not an effective witness to the truth of things. And I can explain that to you in three words. Paul H. Dunn. <laughs> No, that was that was a horrible thing that happened in the church. Because I love Paul H. Dunn. Who here loved Paul H. Dunn? Who wouldn't love Paul H. Dunn? He was extremely effective, extremely charismatic. When he spoke, I felt the spirit and I wasn't the only one. And I read his books even when I was on my mission. And I listened to his talks on cassette tape. Okay. After my mission. His World War II experiences were riveting, and I felt the Spirit witness to me that they were true. Damn it. Sorry, there's a kid again. <laughs> and that was all fine at the time, It was because that was the early 80s. And then sometime after that, a long time after that, oh my gosh. I find out that actually he was making it up, that those World War II experiences did not really happen, at least not the way he said they happened. You know, the miraculous 
stuff that he said happened. And now I am left here to try and make sense of the idea that the Holy Ghost witnessed to me that Paul H. Dunn's stories were true when they didn't really happen. So you know what I did with that? I just sort of ignored it and kept going on. See, that's the way I, as a Mormon, would deal with things, is by not dealing with them. Anybody know somebody like that? <laughs> yes. And honestly, you know, Mormons are not the only people who do that. All of us do that in different aspects of our life. And I think probably growing and maturing has to do with um, doing that less and less. Not dealing with things, choosing to deal with things by not dealing with them. Um, and dealing with things by dealing with them is generally preferable. And if you put it in those words, everybody would agree, but we'd all continue in our different areas doing it anyway. So now, Paul H. Dunn, that's an obvious one, right? So that's when I learned finally and came to grips with the idea that the Holy Ghost is not a good instrument for discerning truth. Or at least not if we define truth as historical truth of things that really happened, okay? All right, so I'll limit it to that. I think that's pretty much uh, demonstrable. Now, hey, what time is it? Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to try and hurry here. But there are two other experiences that I had, and these were relatively early on. I'm back from my mission. I'm in my 20s. I'm in college, undergrad, dance major. <laughs> There was this English class, right? And I thought that I had clept out of this English class by the advanced placement class I'd taken in high school. And I can't remember what happened, but I didn't go to class, and I thought everything was fine, I'm going to get credit, and all of a sudden I find out, no, that's not the case. And it's like three weeks before finals, and suddenly I'm supposed to read all of the material that everybody else has been reading for the whole semester and then take the final at the same time that they're taking it. Honestly, I can't remember how this happened. But I'm sure it did. So I'm reading all this stuff. And fortunately, it's not huge books, but it's like essays and littler pieces. But i got to read like 20 of them or 25 of them. And I'm not a really good reader, but I crammed. And in the middle of this, one of the things that I've got to read is a certain document called A Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Anybody heard of that? Who wrote that? Martin Luther King. Yes, Junior. But Martin Luther King and... I'd never heard of this before. I'd never heard of this letter from a Birmingham jail before, but I'd sure heard about Martin Luther King Jr. before. I was a good Mormon. And you know who I'd heard about him from? I had heard about MLK from ETB. Ezra Taft Benson. <laughs> and I had a book that was a collection of speeches that he gave called An Enemy Hath Done This. And I knew everything I needed to know about Martin Luther King Jr., thank you very much. Either a communist, a communist dupe, or a communist sympathizer. <laughs> he was a bad guy. This much I knew, because I believed the words of the prophets. So, but I've got to read it anyway, right? Okay, I'm not casting judgment on him. I know he's a communist. But I've got to... <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Is this me? No. 
doing that. Okay, let me just try this again. Is this okay? Is this better? Can you hear me? Well, it is better. Okay, so there's someone out there who's in charge of the sound and they turned it off or they turned the gain down. Okay. Uh, should I keep speaking? Okay. Okay, I'll just speak loud. I can project. Where was I? Oh, Mar oh yeah, a letter from a Birmingham jail. By this time, by the way, I've been on my mission. I read the Book of Mormon. I got my testimony of that. I have come to the point in my life when I can recognize the feelings of the Holy Ghost. Okay? I can also recognize the opposite. But I have experienced them enough that I know when I'm feeling it. And here I'm cramming for this essay. And I'm reading all this stuff, and now I'm reading this from uh, reading this letter from a Birmingham jail from a communist. And I will be darned if I don't feel the Holy Ghost while I'm reading this letter from a Birmingham jail. <laughs> now, I am not expecting this. I think I've given you that impression. I didn't feel it when I'm reading anything else, but I am. And I'm thinking, what on earth does this mean? I don't think it means the church is true. Does it mean communism is true? I didn't even go there. <laughs> but I remember just being stunned by this. Fortunately, I had a lot of other things I had to read. But just being absolutely stunned by this, and maybe for just a minute or two thinking, okay, there's no way I can cram this into the rubric of the church is true. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was not a Mormon to my knowledge. If he had been, it would have been easy. But... I started thinking for a second, well, is he talking, is it maybe the spirit witnessing to me that the principles that he's talking about are true, okay? And I said, wait a second there, I don't want to go down that road. That's a dangerous road to go down, because if you go down that road, what does that say about my testimony of the Book of Mormon? Okay, was the Holy Ghost just telling me the principles in the Book of Mormon are true? Okay, let no. So I stopped thinking about that really quick. And finally, the most curious one of all was when I was forced to go watch a performance of modern dance. Now, ballet, you got to do it. Tap jazz, enjoyable. Modern, I had no use for. Okay? And that's where, you know, you got bare feet, right? And... Yeah, I did not like modern dance. I didn't like doing it. I didn't like performing it. I didn't like watching it. But I have to go watch this for a class. So the North Carolina Modern Dance Company is coming through town. And so we got to go to watch it and write some paper on it. And they're up there doing their thing, you know, and I have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> Those of you who know modern dance know what I'm talking about. And once again, I feel the Holy Ghost. I don't feel the Holy Ghost all the time. It sounds like it because I'm mentioning these times, right? But I don't, and it's very clear, it's very distinct, and it's very, what the heck are you doing here during this performance? I don't even like modern dance. What are you testifying to me of? I've got no idea. I can't even go to the principles of it. There's no principles being danced up there. And for one moment, I thought, well, is it talking about beauty? I didn't think it was that beautiful. Is it beauty? Is it that connection between beauty and truth that Keats talks about in the last two lines of Ode on a Grecian Urn? Truth is beauty, beauty, truth. That is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. 
I put the question marks at the end. He doesn't have the question marks. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. Well, I don't know. But this is not helping me with my testimony of Mormonism. So that goes on the shelf as well. So those are the three things. Where we talk about the meaning of a spiritual experience, I have got spiritual experiences. I still don't know what the meaning is. But if I have spiritual experiences like those two, MLK, Martin Luther King, and the North Carolina Dance Company, where I can be pretty darn sure that the interpretation of them is not the LDS church is true, then couldn't the same thing be said for me personally about other experiences I have had where I'm more comfortable saying that they mean that the LDS church is true? Once this is ambiguous, it rendered the other things much more ambiguous to me as well. And finally, we get to number four. Ah. Oh, hang on a second here. It is so quiet in here. I, am I, I'm dying up here, right? Am I dying? Okay, because either everybody's enthralled or asleep. Uh, okay, now for the truth, which I'm going to put in quotation marks. This is part four, because I think the most fascinating aspect of this for me personally is what if there really is a Holy Ghost or some sort of medium from God. What I want to do is I want to give everything to the church on this. In other words, we will assume that you are correct in every aspect of what it is you're claiming about these spiritual experiences for me in my life and then see where that takes us. So I will give to the church for purposes of the argument that the church uh, says that these spiritual experiences are real, that they're from God, and that they mean the church is true. Okay? I can't give much more than that. Then I have to ask the question, okay, can something be true for one person and not true for another person? And, of course, I hark back to my conversation with Seth Bag. Yes, absolutely. I'd already come to that point in understanding. And this isn't, this isn't truth, by the way, about whether there's a, a camera pointed at me right there, which is actually objectively and empirically demonstrable, and everybody here could walk up and feel the prints of the nails in the hands and in the side of that camera. <laughs> and we would all agree that objectively that exists. We're talking about deep, deeper subjective truths. I say deeper, but they're subjective truths, okay? Can something be true for one person and it's not true for another person? I have to say yes, because I've already come to that conclusion, all right? Uh, can the LDS Church be true for me and uh, the Baptist Church, or the Jehovah's Witness Church, or whatever church it might be, or whatever religion, it doesn't have to be Christian. Can that be true for them? Yes. For me, that is that is correct, and that makes sense for me. Then I have to ask myself a similar question, all right? If something can be true for you, Ethan, and not true for me at one and the same time, then the question has to become for me. Could something be true for me at one time in my life and not true for me at another time in my life? In other words, what holds between two different people? Can that hold for me at different times in my life? Could something be true for me when I was 19 years old that is not true for me or not true in the same way for me when I am 59 years old? Oh, I just said my age. <laughs> I'm 59. Can you believe it? Uh, I can't. 
but it's been 40 years. And then I heard someone uh, make this uh, comment. They said a man, I think the comment was a man, but it would apply to women too, I believe. A person who believes the same thing at 40 as they believed when they were 20 has just wasted 20 years of their life. How many have heard that before? Yeah. Right. Is it a good thing if we believe the same thing when we're 19 that we believe when we're 59? Or does that show that we haven't grown at all? So I start flipping things on their head, and all of a sudden, the, the things that were promoted as positive of a testimony by the LDS Church started looking the opposite to me. And then I came up with this thought this morning. It just came to me. It's amazing how the revelation flows. <laughs> No, and here's, here's, I wrote it down. This is written, now it's scripture. <laughs> and I will let you decide. Because everybody has to make their own personal decision about what scripture, what speaks to them. Okay, here it is. If I climb to the top of the Statue of Liberty, assuming you can still do that today, I don't know. You used to could. If I climb to the top of the Statue of Liberty, am I denying the first flight of steps because I have left them far behind. I'm going to say that again because I think it's so profound. If I climb to the top of the Statue of Liberty, am I denying the first flight of steps because I have left them far behind? I think there are people who would say, hey, you're getting too close to the torch. You're denying that first flight of steps. You need to get back there. All right. Now, let me give you just another couple of, uh, oh, I have gotten so much into literature. I've mentioned that in a couple of podcasts. Great classic world literature, all the stuff I avoided reading when I was younger in high school in favor of Marvel Comics, right? And, um, and Edgar Rice Burroughs, too. I read some Edgar Rice Burroughs when I was younger. So what has happened is this, is that when I was a kid, I read this book called The Mad King by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Not one of his more popular ones. There's no Tarzan, right? There's no apes. But it was really, really rollicking fun, and I enjoyed the heck out of it. And I remember that book. I still had the paperback version. And also at a similar time in my life, when I was in high school, I read one book. This was I like the one literature book I read. It was a little red book with yellow lettering. It's called Catcher in the Rye. Anybody read that? I picked that up at the library probably because I heard it was dirty, <laughs> frankly. And I started reading that book on the bus ride home from school, Sumner High School, in Washington. Remarkable experience. I was hooked on this book. I could not put it down. I got home. I read it through the afternoon. I read it through the evening up until 10, 11 o'clock at night when I finally got done with it. I was just carried away with this book. It was incredible. So... I think that sometimes a spiritual experience may be a reaction, a, excuse me, um, what do you call it, a vibration. What am I trying to say? What's the word? Bill? Line? <laughs> Resonance. Thank you. A reson it resonates with me. Everybody here, I'm thinking, has had times when something has resonated with you. And it's hard to put more words to it than that there's something that's going on. But here's the funny thing about this. 
and really I'm very close to the end. Um, I came back now when I'm reading this literature when I'm much older now, and I decided, oh, there's The Mad King by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Let me give that a look because I enjoyed it so much when I was a kid. I didn't get through the first chapter. It was bleh. All right. What struck me and resonated with me, thank you again, when I was a kid, no longer resonated with me. And then I thought, Catcher in the Rye, let me try that again. I hope I don't have the same experience. And I didn't. I had a wonderful experience once again with Catcher in the Rye. Not everybody does, you know. Not everybody likes Catcher in the Rye. It really speaks to me. So here I'm confronted with this idea of there are things that I know spoke to me when I was a kid that no longer speak to me. And there are things that spoke to me when I was a kid that continue to speak to me. And just because it doesn't speak to me any longer doesn't mean it didn't speak to me when I was a kid. Okay. So, I've got too much stuff here. Did this start at two? Do I have ten minutes? Okay, good. Good. Because Moby Dick was another one. Moby Dick was another one. Moby Dick, my mom would get these um, big books for the kids for Christmas. You know, the, the nice binding, the leather binding, the gilt pages. You know, I don't know who produced them, but somebody. And then they would, and she would get them for us and we'd never read them. But she would always put a nice inscription on it. You know, she put, uh, to Radio Free Mormon. <laughs> That's what she always called me. Um, uh, you know, Christmas 1989, love, mom, and dad, you know, <laughs> that's not dad's hand, right? I know it's you, mom, but thanks anyway. But this book, Moby Dick, and of course, everybody's heard of Moby Dick for crying out loud. And I started deciding, no, this is, this is before I've really committed myself to learning about literature. This is when I'm like 35 years old, all right? So I'm much older, uh, but she gave this to me when I was maybe 29. I don't even think I looked at it, but it's thir I'm 35. I'm going to read this book. I hear great things about this book. How many people here have heard great things about Moby Dick? How many uh, people are getting tired, I know, because the hands are not going up as high. <laughs> but how many people have read it? There are a few? Good, good. Uh, so I try when I'm 35. I just cannot get into this thing. You know, I get like seven chapters and I hit second Nephi. <laughs> And I just go, blah. <laughs> he has a whole chapter about whales. It's called Cetology. By the way, that means the study of whales. C-E-T. That's all I knew from, about Moby Dick. And I just said, forget it. Forget about it. So I now 20 years go by, and I'm 55. And I pull out the same book. And uh, I'm just getting a little misty for a different reason. You don't know what it is. I'll tell you what it is in a second. And um, I start reading it again. And I said, I'm going to skip second Nephi, okay, because that whale thing, it didn't contribute to the plot at all. <laughs> and I got past the whale thing, which is maybe in the first hundred pages, and I got past it, and I moved, and I powered through this thing. It was the most amazing book I've ever read in my entire life. Moby Dick is absolutely incredible. And so I wanted to talk here just briefly about the idea that there has to be a willingness to be open to receiving more 
But it's not just the willingness. That's critical, I think. There also has to be, for me, the capacity to receive more. I wasn't able to receive it when I was 19, when I was 35 years old, for crying out loud. I am a slow, I'm a late bloomer. But when I was 55, finally, I could receive a lot of what it was he was given me. I, I don't know that it was all. I guess it's not. And at some point, I need to go back and read it again. But that was my experience with Moby Dick, that there has to be an, a willingness to receive something and a capacity to receive something. So here, let me tell you this, because I think we can learn something from Joseph Smith here. I don't mean to shock you. <laughs> I think there are things we can learn all around the horn from Joseph Smith, from the Book of Mormon, from Moby Dick. But here's what I think about Joseph Smith. OK, Joseph Smith produces the Book of Mormon, however, he produces it. And then the month after it comes off the press in March of 1830, there is a revelation received in which God Almighty says the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel. OK, everybody here is aware of this, right? And there have been a number of responses to this, because it seems strange since Joseph Smith added so much after the Book of Mormon came off the press, whether it was uh, baptism for the dead or the three degrees of glory or the temple endowment or you know, plural marriage or any of a number of things that were not mentioned in the Book of Mormon, but that came forth through Joseph Smith after the Book of Mormon comes off the press. So how is it that the Book of Mormon can contain the fullness of the gospel, right? And the two main responses are, well, look, uh, yeah, Joseph Smith is making it up. It's a false revelation. Obviously, it doesn't contain the fullness of the gospel if you've got to add all this other stuff. And from the other side, it is to diminish what really the gospel is and say the gospel, the fullness of the gospel is what's in the Book of Mormon. This other stuff is something other than the gospel or the fullness of the gospel. I think everybody here has probably heard those. But here's my take on it. And this came to me in the last week or so. I want to look at this like a cup, okay? It can be a nice little teacup or whatever kind of cup you want. If that cup is full, and it is so full of the gospel, or so full of truth, right, that you could not add another drop to that without it spilling over. In other words, it, it's actually above the level of the lid. You know how it can be so high and yet not spill over? If you put one more drop in, it's going to spill over. All right. So the question is, how could Joseph Smith put more truth into this cup without it spilling over? And the answer came to me like a bolt from the blue. The answer was simple. He got a bigger cup. <laughs> and when I realized that, that spoke to me because I realized that's how we can do it, too. That's how I can do it, too. If it applies to you, fine. I will speak only for myself. I just need to get a bigger cup. And now I can receive more of whatever it is that whatever power is out there, if power there be, is trying to give to me. I just need a bigger cup. It's kind of like Roy Scheider and Jaws. You need a bigger boat. <laughs> and come to think of it, maybe Ahab needed a bigger boat, too. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to get to the conclusion here. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit about this uh, from one of my favorite books of literature, which I brought with me. I actually had to get one. I had to get it at the used bookstore because I didn't have one hanging around. I couldn't find mine. No, that's not it. That's one I'm reading now. Here it is. Dracula. How many here have read Dracula? 
There's a lot of people here. I'm just going to read something very, very quickly, okay? There, well, I've highlighted a couple of things. It's a great point in the entire story. I don't think it's ever been put on screen, all right? But here's Van Helsing, right? The great vampire killer. And he's coming to his former student, who is John Seward. He's the guy who's the head of the insane asylum. You remember the one that's got the guy in there who's eating flies? Okay, do you remember that? Okay. I'm testing you. Um, no, anyway, so what, what Van Helsing knows is that John Seward is, he's a doctor, he's a man of science, uh, and Van Helsing is trying to get him ready to believe the fact that this dear friend of theirs named Lucy, Lucy Westenra, who has, under strange circumstances, died because of blood loss, which they can't really account for. She's died. She's dead. She's in the grave. And he's trying to get him prepared to understand that there are really vampires in the world. All right. So he knows he's got a challenge. He can't just come up to him and say, hey, John, there's vampires. Because he will not accept it. So this, there's this whole chapter in which there's this wonderful conversation between Van Helsing and his former student, John Seward, which leads up to him telling him this. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's really only about four uh, pages long. But here's one of the things he says. He says, you are a clever man, because Bram Stoker, you know, it's a, it's a Dutch guy from Amsterdam in broken English, right? So he says, you are a clever man, not you are a clever man. You are a clever man, friend John. You reason well, and your wit is bold, but you are too prejudiced. He hasn't talked to him about vampires yet. He's saving that. But you are too prejudiced. You do not let your eyes see, nor your ears hear. And that which is, and that which is outside your daily life is not of account to you. Do you not think... Do you not think that there are things which you cannot understand and yet which are? That some people see things that others cannot. Now, pretty much everybody has got to agree with that as a general proposition, right? And here he starts opening the doorway for John to understand what it is that he really has to tell him. And then he complains. He makes this, I'm skipping down, just so you know. He makes this wonderful comment about science. Science is a wonderful thing, but believe it or not, there are drawbacks. And he identifies one. He says, ah, A-H, ah. It is the fault of our science. Mm. Ah, it is the fault of our science that it wants to explain all. And if it explain not, then it says... There is nothing to explain. That was interesting. And finally, let me get to this last part, all right? Oh, and this is where, oh, John Seward, he knows that the, the Van Helsing is driving at something, and he wants to understand it, but he doesn't. He says, Professor, let me be your pet student again. Tell me the thesis. You know, quit just sort of doing all this vague stuff. Tell me what your thesis is. And Van Helsing says, <clears throat> okay, I shall tell you. My thesis is this. I want you to believe. That's his thesis. I want you to believe. And John Seward says, to believe what? And Van Helsing says, to believe in things that you cannot. This is what I want, for you to believe in things that you cannot. Let me illustrate one of my favorite parts here. 
Let me illustrate. I heard once of an American who so defined faith as follows. So this is this American, he says, who defined faith in the following way. This is my favorite definition of faith ever, by the way. That which enables us to believe things which we know to be untrue. (laughs) Faith is when we believe something that we know is not true. That's faith, at least according to this definition. Fascinating definition. Also this idea of dealing with things by not dealing with them. But he says, for one thing, I follow that man. And this is the most beautiful. He meant that we shall have an open mind and not let... Please pay attention now if you haven't been for the past hour. He meant that we shall have an open mind and not let a little bit of truth check the rush of a big truth. Like a small rock does a railway truck. We get the small truth first. Good! Exclamation point. We keep him and we value him, the small truth. We keep him and we value him. But all the same, we must not let him think himself all the truth in the universe. So that's the end of that part from there. I'm going to finish with a quote of myself. It's going to be me quoting myself again. This is the only time I planned on doing it until I came up with that thing this morning that I read you earlier. Okay. I think this applies. It may be tangentially. But this is back when Spencer Kimball was the president of the church, and I joined the church in June of 1978. And Spencer Kimball had given a talk in which he he likened the members of the church either to race horses or to plow horses. Don't know if any of you remember that. And what he had talked about was that in the church, well, well, first off, he had said a race horse will go really fast for a short distance and then give out. But a plow horse will go on and on day after day for its whole life. And then he made the comparison. He said, in the church, we want to have plow horses. We don't want race horses. So I was thinking about this. This is actually back on October 20th of 2013. I know because I dated it. That this thought came to me. And I'll close with this. God wants plow horses and not race horses. So we are told. But what I think God wants most of all is to have winged horses. Thank you very much, St. George. starts getting off the stand after direct examination and said, no, the other side gets a chance at you, too. <laughs> Hi. I'm a big fan, Art, Oh, because thank you. I heard you tell your story in relation to what your yourself was tonight. But you told your story about when you first read the Book of Mormon mm-hmm. and the experiences you had each and every night that you read that. So how, how do you make sense of all that? Well, that, um, if you'll just buy this video and play it back. Hopefully that will that will do it. 
Because that's why I think the last part is the most interesting, which is saying, well, what if it really is testifying to the truth of something? And can something be true for me when I'm 19? That's why I said 19, by the way, because that's when I received my testimony of the Book of Mormon when I prayed my way through it. And not true for me or not true for me in the same way when I'm 59. Because one thing that's very clear to me is that, uh, number one, I had that experience. The second thing that's clear to me is I interpreted it at that time as the Book of Mormon is word for word the word of God, i.e. it really happened in real time and place in the real stories about real people who did real things on the real American continent somewhere, on the real American continent. But then over time, I've had to revisit that. And I've had to accept the fact that, you know, the Book of Mormon uh, is kind of remarkable in its production, but still it bears, well, let's just say uh, overwhelming evidence of it being a product of early 19th century America. And therefore, whatever that witness was I received, my interpretation of it was probably taking it too far. Kind of like maybe Paul H. Dunn. See, they all kind of interlink these things. And it's one of the things that's been hard for me to put all the pieces together and then try and categorize it. But yeah, so what do I do with it? I believe that it was true. First off, I believe it happened. I know it happened, you know, um, and I'm not going to deny it. That might be the easy way, but it wouldn't be honest with me myself. Uh, but that it happened, that it was important to me. And this is also why that thing that came to me this morning about the first steps in climbing up the Statue of Liberty, if I'm climbing up to the torch, does that mean I'm denying the first flight of steps? It starts to get kind of um, not logical, but more, what would you call metaphysical or philosophical, but maybe that's inevitable. Or some other word that ends with a bull. <laughs> but that's the best I can do for that. Does that help at all? It does. It sounded like a cool experience. Oh, yeah, it was incredible. It was incredible. And by the way, one of the things about that, and I have to follow Elder Oaks on this. <laughs> because one of the things he said was, if, you're, if, you're, if I'm receiving revelation... <laughs> then one of the things that would most indicate to him that it's really revelation and not his own thoughts is if it contradicts what he believes, okay? So this isn't about contradicting what I believe, but I had this crazy experience with the Book of Mormon that nobody had prepared me for. This is not, this is the way your experience will go, because I'm hearing the burning in the bosom, right? If I'm expecting anything, it's going to be a burning in the bosom, but no, I have this weird thing. Don't know if everybody's heard it, but uh, I read through the Book of Mormon, prayed my way through it over a course of a couple months. Every evening I get in bed and read some, and it was this, as if the walls of my mind were falling down, and I could see to eternity and all. See, I can't even put my arms back that far. In all directions at once. Every time. So, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. And there was something else I wasn't expecting. What was it? Oh, yeah, Martin Luther King Jr. I wasn't expecting that, which also makes me more convinced personally that those are real experiences because, man, they came out of the blue. I wasn't it wasn't confirming anything I believed, and it wasn't what I expected to have happen. OK, obviously, the Book of Mormon confirmed, but it wasn't what I expected to have happen. Yes. Any other questions? Do I take it from here, Wayne? There should be more questions. I don't know. I can just I can feel that if you want. Do you want to feel it? Okay. Did you know that back in the day, Kobe Dick was a sardine? 
No, you mean before he got bigger? Really? No, I didn't know that. I do know that back when I went to Baylor camp when I was a kid, there was this joke that went around. It was a bit of a, uh, what would you call it? A um, uh, ribald joke that the kids would tell. You know, what's long, white, and lace on the bottom of the ocean? I'll let you figure out the answer. Moby's dick. Come on. <laughs> really? That was a tough one to get. I'm sorry. No. Uh, yes. Over here. Yes, please. Um, I was going to say the purpose of Santa Claus was like in Germany, they would have a St. Nicholas dressed up and it had a sack over his back and it had like arms and legs of children. They were wooden. They were pretend. Pretend. They weren't real. But they, the parents would point to the, the man that would walk past and say, that will happen to you if you don't behave. And so, and the kids are like terrified. So the point of St. Nicholas was a disciplinary thing. Mm -hmm. It was you, you stay, you be good all year, and then you get presents. So yes. if you were good, then you loved him. But if you were threatened with coal or you got coal, he wasn't so cool. No. You know, and I think the church does that too. It was it, the point of the church is that it was disciplinary. It was a purity culture. Any thoughts on that? Um, a confessional culture, a purity culture. Um, like Krampus? Yeah. Is that the name? Yes, Kringle. The evil side of Santa? Yeah, the evil side. It's like Mirror Mirror in Star Trek, where Santa Claus has like that. Never mind. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about, Spock. A purity culture. Um, I will tell you. Okay, here's my brief thoughts on that. I think that uh, Mormonism, as much as any re Christian religion I know, uh, stresses obedience to a certain set of performances and commandments. And um, in some ways, I think that's almost inevitable because I started thinking about it a number of years ago and thinking, as soon as you introduce one commandment, right, that you're supposed to do, no matter what it is, it almost seems inevitable that it's opening the door to more. And as soon as there's one commandment, I'm no expert on this, I'm no sociologist, okay, but it seems as soon as there's one commandment that we use in order to determine our worthiness, our conformance, our purity, our righteousness, then what we're going to want is more and more in order to further define that and categorize and stratify everybody because it's not just chickens who like to put everybody in a certain pecking order. Yeah, we, see, we have a lot in common with, with chickens. We want to have, know where everybody fits in. We want to know where we fit in as well. And uh, some of us will think we fit in higher than we do. Some of us will think we fit in lower than we do. And maybe there's no fitting in, really, and we're just all together in the same coop. I don't know. But that struck me some time ago about the purity culture. The other thing about Mormonism is what that purity culture does to the role of Jesus Christ. And his atonement. Um, I know there's sort of been some movement in the church. It's herky-jerky because different people will say different things. I want to get back to this. Remind me of where I was. I haven't been able to do a podcast on this. But you remember when they changed a year ago, they changed the temple endowment. It made some rather significant changes in it. And then there was a video, apparently, that played at the beginning. It is a video. There was some kind of message from the First Presidency and the Apostles that played at the beginning. And I think I heard it, uh, and it said something about, you know, you're not supposed to talk about this with anybody. 
Yeah, first off is the caveat and the 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 fig leaf that it's funny because it's about Adam and Eve. But the fig leaf that, yeah, we're changing it, but that's okay because God changes his stuff all the time. It just has to be changed by the right people, right, which are the prophets. But you're not supposed to talk about these changes with anybody. Do I have that pretty much right, that that's what they said? And then notice what happened in the last general conference. Was it the last one or was it April? I think it was the last one. It was definitely Elder Bednar. When Elder Bednar comes out there and now he wants to give his personal two cents on the issue because he doesn't agree with that. And he wants to let everybody know, this is his whole talk, that you can talk about anything you want about in the temple except for the signs, the tokens, and the penalties. That was very interesting to me, especially in connection with that other thing that had happened so recently. And as a friend of mine once recently said, when general authorities get up, especially the apostles, get up there and talk in general conference, a lot of times they're facing this way, but really what they're doing is they're, they're preaching to these guys behind them and trying to stake out their individual positions on issues where they're not all agreed on it. They present as all agreed, but if you really listen carefully, you can see, no, they're not. And in fact, they're actually jockeying for position sometimes. Um, President Uchtdorf, did not win the race. <laughs> no, that's sad. Yes, way back there. You know, you brought up in Richard Cassidy had a couple of red slimes. I just echo a little bit of an analogy between that and your separation from the church. Is it, do you have any remaining affection for the church? As if it were an after an I have no remaining affection for any of my ex-wives. <laughs> That's an easy one. Well, no, go ahead. Is there, is there any value? Sorry. Is there, there's such a spectrum of emotion when people separate from the church. Yes. Often it's very extreme. Is there any value? Do you see any value in nostalgia or the, 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 the starting steps at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, which were essential to yeah, I think it's a great question. And what I here's something that does happen in many divorce cases. I've done some divorce work besides my own. I've done some divorce work. I'm familiar with it. There's another attorney who's a friend of mine in the office who all he does is what's called family law, which really means divorce law. But um, it is very common in a divorce that is not really amicable, and believe me, if it's going to start out amicable and attorneys get involved, <laughs> it frequently becomes not amicable anymore. Um, by the way, that reminds me of my favorite joke about attorneys. 95% uh, of attorneys give the rest of us a bad name. Having said that, uh, there is, it's very common in a divorce for people who at least used to get along, okay, in some degree or other, maybe they used to love each other, probably, right, uh, to now be separated and start building up this image of the other person as not just somebody that they never loved or somebody that they don't like, but as an actual monster. And that they will create this image of a monster. And it goes both ways, right? And, of course, that's a total car uh, caricature. They're not a monster. They may not be a good match. Maybe there are things about them that are not positive, but they're not a monster, right? But that happens so often. 
when you create a monster in order to defend yourself against a decision to leave a certain situation. And I think that sometimes, not judging, I'm not uh, Judgy McJudgerson up here, but I think sometimes it's possible to do that with religions. And you can leave a religion and then create it as a monster in order to justify your leaving it, which may occlude your ability to look back and see positive experiences that you had in that church. Is this kind of what you're getting at? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I think that the church, uh, I had some wonderful experiences as a member of the church, and they uh, are at least partially responsible for who I am today. So I think that is positive. There are obviously negative things about the church, but there are positive things about the church, and there continue to be positive things about the church. Now, whether the negative outweighs the positive or vice versa, that's an individual judgment for every individual to make. But I think, yeah, there's positive things about the church. It's not a complete monster. I think that it tries to do good, and sometimes I think its ability to do it is hampered somewhat by its structure. Um, so having said all of that, I'm going to say that's my answer. Okay. Uh, okay, can we get Ethan first and then Bill? Okay. Now, I was reading your episode, The $100 Billion Baby. Yeah. And, and that's also, I did it with Bill Real, too, by the way, everybody. Yeah. You mentioned how a lot of the apostles didn't even know about the $100 billion. Right. Um, I wanted to know what your thoughts are on whether the apostles or prophet know much about the problems in the church, if they're um, really trying to suppress a lot of the information, or if they possibly don't know these things, they really are, okay, ask a number of things for that, um, can I go to the last thing you said, okay, the last thing that you said, that was actually my very first episode, that was my very first episode, which was, what was it, hiding church history, my first three episodes all kind of sounded the same with their titles, it was. Ethan knows it better than I do. Yay, Hattie Church History is like number three. Okay, so like I said, they sound the same. No, that was exactly it because I started off by saying, you know, uh, all of a sudden these essays are coming out and now the church is sort of talking in hushed tones and three clicks deep about all these issues they never talked about before, which raises the question, have they known about it all along, and have they been hiding it, and now it's unsuccessful, so now we'll put it in the essays, or are they just finding out about it now themselves? And that was what I would hear from some apologists. Now that they know about it, they're being as quick as they can about making it public in a non-public kind of way, <laughs> right, with the essays. So, and that's what the whole thing was, and I went back to... Boyd K. Packer, 1980 or 81, I think 81, in his talk, The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect. And the amazing thing about that is that was Exhibit A, the smoking gun, that shows conclusively that at least as far as Boyd K. Packer is concerned, yes, he knew about it, and yes, he wanted to hide it. And he was telling all the teachers for the church at BYU and the church educational system, you need to go along with this. You need to hide this stuff. Okay, you're only to tell the faith promoting side of church history. It's where the famous quote is, is that not all truths are useful. Right. It may be true, but you don't say it and you don't talk about it and you don't publish about it because 
And you can't justify yourself by saying, hey, it's already been published over here in this source. Because he says, you don't know this other source that, you, that you're quoting from, that could go out of print. And you could be the one keeping this alive. Okay? This is also the, also the one where he says, don't spread disease germs. Right? It's where he advocates telling only half the truth, and he knows the other half is there. That's what I mean, right? Yeah, he's being intentionally deceptive. Now, he's doing it for what he thinks is a higher purpose. Okay, and God save everybody from those who would deceive for a higher purpose. Okay, that's a real slippery slope. It's a slope that goes like that. That's how slippery that slope is. It's like 90 degrees. So, yeah, um, there's a lot of deception. I think there's a lot of guys up there who don't know anything, but I think they've all got to know it now, don't they, since they've all had to approve all the essays. I think that even though they have no signatures on the essays, they're all now on the hook. They can't say we didn't know it. When they had approved the essays, they have read all those Joseph Smith papers. Yes, sir. Two observations are. Please. One, I love your Statue of Liberty um, thought because if that's the journey of my time in the church and the rest of my life, I like who I am today. And as I've gotten to meet a lot of you, I like who you guys are. And so part of that journey was being a Mormon, and it shaped who I was. So I just want to say thank you for that analogy. It was beautiful. The other thing was that um, I'm a big fan of children's literature, where the red fern grows, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, Hatchet, uh, books like that, Newberry Award winners. And when I was younger and read those books, I had metaphysical experiences with those books, including dreams and visions, right? Our imagination. The difference was the authors of those books didn't tell me how to interpret my metaphysical experience. Mm -hmm. And if, if you would have read Moby Dick and the author would have told you that you feeling good about my book means you should send me 400 bucks or whatever, whatever the interpretation is that's forced or imposed on you, it changes the book entirely. Yeah. And I think we all have to take a step back and recognize that it's the one instance in our life where we were told what our experiences should mean to us, and we got lost in that imposition. Yes, is it Kent? Pebble. The story about the pebble in, in, um, in the book. One of the things I struggle with is I, I see how being a Mormon has taught me to just see the pebble. Do you agree with me? My cup is only this full, like I need a bigger cup, that kind of an idea. Yeah. Now that I see that, I'd love your opinion on what's the boulder in life. What? No? Um. Dracula, you're talking about. Yes. He's convincing and there's this little pebble on yes. the Right? Yes, okay, so the I truth. See that, and that's where I've been my whole right. life. Right. Yes. Now that I see that, right. and everything else opens up, mm -hmm. I'd like your opinion on what is the big picture. I mean, I think a lot of people here go through, okay, is there a Christ? Is there a God? Is there whatever? What have you learned? That is what you must discover for yourself. <laughs> Grasshopper. <laughs> And that's the thing. Did you just flip me off? No. I, 
thought you just did that. That was great, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. And today I got a bigger cup. I, I, Good. Yeah, That's the whole point. Okay. I'd love to know what you think or what you've learned in your life and your journey. No, the boulder, the boulder is the truth. Well, the rock is the truth. By the way, you can get this for yourself. You can get this really cheap Dracula <laughs> paperback. Okay, it's very cheap. But um, I cannot tell you what that railway truck is. It's the railway truck that is the big truth that's trying to come through, that often can be impeded from coming through because of the other truth that you've already received, which is the little rock that you cherish so much and you love it so much and you think it's all the truth in the universe, right? that what it ends up doing without your even knowing it is that it's keeping a huge uh, Amtrak train of truth coming through. And I think that's what he's saying. But what is that Amtrak train? Well, I'm just asking, in your experience as leaving the church, it seems to be enlightened that it's not just the devil or whatever. Where are you in the world? Can I quote Louis L'Amour on that? <laughs> Somebody says, yeah. Let me try, yeah, okay. The trail's the thing, not the end of the trail. Travel too fast, and you miss all that you're traveling for. That's so helpful in a non-helpful way. <laughs> but ultimately, even Louis L'Amour, I mean, really, we've got prophets everywhere. And Alma, and Alma 29 talks about that, even in the Old West, or writers of the Old West, right? I think that a true teacher will always turn the question back to you. And of course, that makes me a true teacher, so. <laughs> That's what I found about true teaching. And it's, it's, isn't it aggravating? That's why Kwai Cheng Tang just wanted to punch Master Poe right in the nose sometimes. Because it's very aggravating that it comes back to us. It is our path, it is our growth. And there are teachers that show up, like Gandalf the Grey, right? Who are gonna help you along the way. But what happens at the Prancing Pony? The effort doesn't show. <laughs> I mean, right? He doesn't show. And now you've gotta pick up with a shaggy guy who you really don't trust. And fortunately, they made the right decision. But if they hadn't, that would have been a short book. I'm talking about, you know, Strider, Aragorn. You know who I'm talking about, right? <laughs> uh, the Lord of the Rings, one of the reasons it's so popular is one of the reasons that the only true and living Star Wars movie, the first one, I mean the really first one, not the prequel first one, was so popular is because it's talking about the hero's journey intentionally or not and that's a journey that really all of us have to walk on our own and it ends up we have to leave the place that's comfortable whether it's the church most for most of us it's the church it's where we're comfortable and uh, whether it's Tatooine or whether it's the Shire nobody leaves that on purpose nobody leaves it willingly I mean there's obviously going to be exceptions to everything I'm a lawyer for crying out loud but the main idea is that you're shoved out of it by circumstances, okay? Whether it's your aunt who serves the blue milk 
and your uncle getting turned to crispy critters, <laughs> right? And now you've got to flee because they're after you, whoever those guys are. The what? That's not Lord of the Rings. That's if you're looking at me strangely, or whether it's the Black Riders coming, right? And you've got to get out of the Shire. And now you've got to be on your own. You've got to try and make it work. But there are helps along the way that will show up. And sometimes there are friends who will accompany you. Do you have a question there? This kind of goes along uh, with what you've been talking about. So in leaving the church, is it possible to have an amical divorce? And if so, what would it look like? I, I absolutely think so. Unfortunately, I think that it is very possible to have an amicable divorce with the church. Unfortunately, see, I had never thought of this before, but it comes to me that in a divorce, it's only amicable if both sides are amicable, right? If one side is not amicable, then it's not an amicable divorce by definition, kind of, right? It's possible for one side to be totally amicable and the other side... Okay. And as long as the church is going to continue to treat people who leave in kind of a sort of way, it may not be possible to have an amicable divorce with the church. I think that more often what I see is the church being antagonistic about people leaving. And by that, I mean having public comments and public talks and making denigrating remarks about the intelligence or spirituality or doing a backflip or a half gainer off the side, isn't that? Or some kind of taffy pulling testimony. (laughs) Everybody here, I've got to ask you on behalf of Elder Holland, what kind of taffy pulling testimony do you have? I mean, really? I don't know if he'd have the guts to come up here and say that to you himself in a room full of you, but maybe he would. Is that too, okay? Is that a good answer? Yes. Okay, yes, sir. Oh, guess who this is? Tell everybody who you are. I am the father-in-law of one of Corbin's sons. Can you imagine? Oh. <laughs> what? You let it out. I didn't even hear it. I think you all are imagining things. I learned gaslighting from the best. The question I have, though, is it turns out in the church, the standard works were really everything but their standard in many ways. What I'm kind of interested is where you put scripture, standard works type scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, in your in your analysis of truth and do you continue or did you ever think it was the standard by which we ought to measure things? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because Bruce R. McConkie said that. That's in Mormon doctrine under standard works. There's standard work because a standard is something by which you measure something. And the four standard works are supposed to be what we measure everything by, including the words of prophets. And if the words of prophets do not match up to the standard works, they should be rejected. I'll bet you can find that in there. Well, except you can't find it anymore. <laughs> right? Because they took that Mormon doctrine thing down. Gosh, I'm so sorry. I, I'm, I'm going to come back to your point. You, I may need your help in getting me back there, but... 
I once read from Bruce R. McConkie this list of what his personal thoughts about books in the Old Testament. Anybody ever read that strange document? His own personal feelings about books in the Old Testament? Because, of course, he read all this stuff, and he did. He said something. Was it Genesis is worth its weight in gold? He said something that about something. I can't remember. But other books, you know, he says they're of different uh, value. And he took Job, okay, the book of Job, which, by the way, is kind of universally considered to be one of the classics of literature, not just in the Bible, but in the entire world. And I always, I didn't know this at the time about how, you know, Job was great. But what Bruce R. McConkie said about Job was rather dismissively, Job is good for people who like Job. <laughs> and now looking back at that, I'm going, wow, that really tells me a lot about you. Yeah. Right? In other words, it's not really helpful for proving Mormonism. But, um, and your point was about the standard works. Okay, so the standard works, yeah, I think they have truth in them. I mean, I've got to go to Brigham Young. Any Brigham Young fans here? <laughs> and Seahawks. I think kickoff may have just been a couple minutes ago. Any updates on the game? I know some of you are watching it out there. Okay. Um, no, what Brigham Young said about the scriptures, remember he said about the scriptures being the word of God, and he said, well, it contains the word of God, but it also contains the words of the devil, the words of man, and the words of a jackass. <laughs> so he wasn't able to, uh, he didn't want it to say, it's all the word of God. It may contain things that are the word of God. And I think that probably strikes me as more accurate, because of my experience, I have now broadened my definition of scripture to go, I would still consider the Book of Mormon to be scripture. Okay, I was thrilled this past general conference to have one of the women people who spoke, the women people, the women folk. <laughs> no, there is a sister who spoke. I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was. But she actually quoted one of my favorite scriptures, which I discovered in the Book of Mormon ages ago, which is, uh, and it's never been quoted before that I remembered. It was 2 Nephi chapter 33, verse 9. I glory in plainness, I glory in truth, I glory in my Jesus who hath redeemed my soul from hell. Except she dropped off the from hell part. Yeah, she actually did. Because I know, I'm so excited, I'm quoting it with her. And then she dropped the from hell part. And that actually kind of gives it the final iambic pentameter to it. You know, but at least she discovered it. And she was talking about having seen this recently, and she'd never seen it before because nobody ever quotes it. And um, and then I was going back doing my preparation for my general conference podcast, which I have not gotten to or even close to yet. And it's only been three months, so give me a while. <laughs> um, there's just been so much else to talk about. But I think that there is truth that speaks to me in so many different places, including Dracula, including Shakespeare, including Moby Dick, including uh, so many other things. And um, I've actually read a whole lot, uh, more than I've ever had before, but nowhere near as much as some people. It's been hugely expansive to me. I set it as a goal, a task, and it's been massively rewarding. And I find scripture in many other places, which makes me think that when God says that he has hidden books that are to come forth, okay? And when he says in Alma 29 that he gives us, that he has prophets in every country, nation, tongue, and people who receive as much of the word of the Lord as the Lord sees fit that they should receive to teach people. 
I think the Book of Mormon not only salvationally is universalistic in nature, but also revelationally. Oh my gosh. That was a mouthful. In other words, revelation is universal. And there are teachers everywhere. And they don't have to be, I don't think, in a religion. And I look at Shakespeare and say, is Shakespeare one of these prophets that Alma 29 is talking about? I think so. Is Herman Melville? I think so. Is Bill real? Nah. <laughs> I kid. I kid because I love. No, seriously, because you could tell I was going to say yes. Is Bill real? Is but then I went for the laugh because I'm cheap that way. <laughs> is Bill real? Yes, he is. Absolutely, he has taught me truth. And so I think that these hidden books are not buried in the sands of Egypt, but they are hidden on the stacks in the library, in your local library, in my local library. And finally, I think this is finally, the last thing is, is that when we read that, if Mormons actually read their Book of Mormon, and if they actually read Alma chapter 29 past, oh, that I were an angel, oh, that I were an angel, how many of you are old enough to remember that horrible song? <laughs> There's some people. Gosh, it's like Hermione Gingold is up there singing this. So, but yeah, then you get past that. And if you actually get past it to read that part where it says, that God gives every that God gives to every nation, every erases the prophets, every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people. It pretty much covers everybody. As much of His word as they are willing to receive, if they actually get, if Mormons actually get that far and read that, and if they actually understand it and take it seriously, then the final hurdle that I have experienced is that most Mormons then think that applies to everybody else except for themselves. But it applies to Mormons too. Mormons receive as much of the word of God as God sees fit that they should receive. But there's always more, and all we need is a bigger cup. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, that concludes my presentation given at St. George, Utah on January 12, 2020. I just want to say I had a wonderful, wonderful time and was very grateful for the invitation and for the warm reception I received. After I was done speaking, a number of people came up and introduced themselves to me, and I got to spend a good deal of time talking with them and sharing different thoughts about the gospel and about life. One of those people mentioned to me that I had actually never gotten around to mentioning why it was I was getting a bit emotional when I was talking about what my mother wrote on the inside of the copy of Moby Dick that she gave to me for Christmas back in the 1980s. I mentioned that she had written, Dear Radio Free Mormon, for Christmas 1989, Love Mom and Dad. The reason I started getting emotional was because after I had finally made my way through the book and finished it when I was about 55 years old, that would have been around 2015. You see, my mom passed away on October 10th of 2000. So she had passed away at least 15 years prior to my finally being able to read all the way through Moby Dick. And when I had finished reading through it, I went back to the front of the book and I wrote underneath what she had written back in the 1980s. I wrote, I finally made my way through the book. Thanks for giving it to me, Mom. I miss you. 
That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.